The light is so bright, I can't see who all is out there, so I'm sure there's thousands of you here. I usually get asked to preach when we have camp meeting. I'm not sure why that's the way it is. But uh, Pastor Jeff asked if I would preach today and suggested that I continue on with some of the work that he has been doing, looking at the picture of Jesus. Who is Jesus as revealed in the book of Luke? So today we're going to talk a little bit about one of the pictures of God in the book of Luke. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful Sabbath day here in Boulder, Colorado, the opportunity for us to meet together. We ask that you send your spirit to guide us, to help us to learn more about who you are and how you do love us, and be with those who are at camp meeting, be with those who are online, be with those who may have to be other places today, and especially be with us here in Jesus' name, amen. The story is told of a teacher asking a small boy, what was he going to draw for art class? I'm going to draw a picture of God, the little boy said. Well, nobody knows what God looks like, the teacher said. Well, he responded, they will when I'm done. Hopefully, we will get a better picture of Jesus today because Jesus and God are trying their best to reveal to us a picture of the character of God that attracts us and draws us and also helps us draw some others. We've been looking, as I mentioned, at the picture of God in the book of Luke for several weeks now, and we are trying to answer the question, the ultimate question, is God friendly or is God hostile? Anthony DeMello, who was a Jesuit priest in India, wrote the shortest distance between a human being and truth is a story. Well, once upon a time, a certain man had two sons. We're going to look in Luke 15 for those of you who would like to follow along um, in your Bibles. The book of Luke, in, verse, in chapter 15, Christ is addressing particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. He has been meeting with many people. He has been healing many people. He's been doing many things that the Pharisees think is not what a preacher should be doing, is not what someone who is spiritually doing what a Jewish should, Jew should be doing. Christ was breaking all of the stereotypes. And the scribes and Pharisees said, he eats with publicans and sinners. The Pharisees actually had a belief that before God could love a sinner or forgive a sinner, the sinner must repent. But wait a minute, don't we have a text that we use frequently that if we repent, he will surely forgive us? Do we fall into that trap? Let's look at the story here a little bit more. They also believed that there was rejoicing in heaven 
when a sinner was destroyed. We need to think about that too. We as human beings like stories. Stories catch our attention. Last time I preached, I preached about the woman caught in the very act of adultery. Someone once said to me, do you always preach about sex? No, I don't always preach about sex, but today I'm going to preach a little bit about sex. The person also told me they stay awake anyway when I'm talking, so maybe that'll keep you awake. With a small group like this, I would hate to hear all of the snores coming up this direction. But I think most of us like salacious stories. Salacious means having to do with sex. And I think we like it because when we hear the accounts of other people's lives and other people's sins, it provides us with a sweet secret satisfaction that somehow we are pure and they are defiled. It's, it's part of our human nature. It makes us feel better to hear someone else appears to be worse than we think we are. Unfortunately, it's usually also a false satisfaction. I want to talk here now about the two groups that are represented in this story. The first story in chapter 15, actually, let's move back just a bit, is about a lost coin. No, it's about a lost sheep. About 99 sheep and one is lost out of the group of 100. And the shepherd searches all night to find the sheep brings the sheep back, and then in all of these stories in chapter 15, he calls for a party. The one who has found what is lost calls for a celebration. He tells his friends and neighbors, come and rejoice. I had one lost sheep, and now I have found it. We talked a little bit about Peter feeding the sheep, and Christ often talks about sheep as those who may be lost. They know they're lost, but they don't know what to do about it. He also then tells a story about a lost coin, a woman who had a coin, lost the silver coin somewhere in her house. And for those of you who know a little bit about houses in Israel in those days, they had dirt floors, and it was easy to lose things on the floor. But she cleaned the floor. She looked all through the house and finally found her coin and then called the neighbors again to rejoice that she had found her lost coin. This third story, though, is about a son. We call him the prodigal son. And it's one of the most famous of Christ's parables. A certain man had two sons. I'm going to tell you the, a bit of the story here rather quickly, just so you remember the, the gist of the story. The younger son goes to the father and says, Father, I want my inheritance. This was extremely rude. This was extremely uncalled for because it basically was telling the father, I wish you were dead, but you haven't died yet. Still, I want my inheritance. He asks for inheritance. The father splits up the money between him and his brother, gives him his inheritance, and he leaves. He goes to a city far away, and he squanders his money in riotous living. We're going to come back to that term, riotous living, several times, but... He squanders his money in riotous living. Finally, he runs out of money, and he ends up feeding the pigs in the field of a local landowner. There was nothing that could have been more humiliating for a Jewish young man than to have to work with the pigs, to feed the pigs. But not only does he feed the pigs, 
he actually wishes he could have the food of the pigs because he is not getting any food, not getting enough food. The father is at home, the brother is at home, and the father is missing the son, but the brother is not missing the son. And we'll get a little bit more into that. But the son at, in the field feeding the pigs finally realizes servants at my father's home are treated better and eat better than I am eating. I will get up and I will go home. The father, though, has been looking, has been longing, has been yearning for the return of his son. And every day he goes out on the porch and he looks down the long road, hoping that his son will return. This time he sees him a long way off and he runs to meet his son. He greets him graciously, and then he too says, let's invite all, the, all of the neighbors in, let's have a party. I was listening on my way into church today to the song by Phillips, Craig, and Dean called When God Ran. Some of you probably have heard that. It's about the father running. It was very unusual for an older man in the Jewish custom to run. That was very undignified, but God ran to meet his son, or, or this person who is representing God ran to meet his son. And I thought perhaps the best way to approach this would just be to play that song six times. That would take about 30 minutes, and then we could call it a day. But uh, let's go on with the story. There's another player that is very important in this story, and that's the older brother. As the party is going on, and there's music coming from the dance hall where they are having this party, the brother comes in from working in the field and asks one of the servants, what's going on with this music? What's happening? And the servant tells him, your brother who was lost has been found, and your father is celebrating. He is throwing a par party. He's killed the fatted calf, and we are rejoicing that your brother has returned. The brother, the older brother, is furious. And that's the end of the story. Let's dig into it a little bit more. I want to talk to it a little bit backwards. I want to start with the family dynamics, including those of the older brother. We're actually told very little about the family. We know that there are at least a father and two sons. We hear nothing about a mother or any other siblings. Apparently, the father is fairly wealthy because he does have a large number, it says, of hired servants, and those hired servants eat very well, we are told. It also seems that the older brother works on the farm. He may have done some of the manual labor, or perhaps he was an overseer, but at least he worked on the farm, and he is the one who is coming in from working when he hears about the party. I want to talk a little bit more about the older brother. I personally believe he is one of the major reasons that the younger brother leaves home. I also want to think about, want you to think about, the younger brother and the older brother and the two different classes that they represent. Is it possible that in our church today, we have representatives of both classes? In fact, I personally believe that some of the major discussions and contradictions and fights that we are having in our church 
are because we have a large group of elder brothers and a group of younger brothers, and they both have different views of the world, different views of God, and different views of what the future of our church should be. Why do I think it's the older brother that has a major role in the reason why the brother, younger brother left? I also believe that the father did, and we'll talk about that in a little while. But brothers spend more time together usually than sons and fathers do. At least in my family, that was the case. I had a younger brother, and we spent a great deal of time together. We played together, we played catch together, we did traded baseball cards together. We had did a lot of stuff together, and we hardly ever saw my father, our father. He was off doing really important stuff, like doing surgery and making money so that we could buy baseball cards. Second, we get a picture of what kind of guy the brother is when we see the way he responds to the fact that the younger brother has returned. The younger brother has returned. He is starving. Who knows what kind of diseases, perhaps venereal diseases, that he has as he is coming back. He is totally destitute, but the brother, older brother doesn't care. The older brother is focused on himself and the work that he has been doing since the younger brother has been gone. For many years I have slaved for you, he tells his father, and I never disobeyed any of your commands. He is smug. He is self-righteous. He's a goody-goody. He sounds a lot like the Pharisees to whom Christ was addressing this story. Some actually believe that perhaps one of the scribes that was in this story was the older brother and knew very well what this story was all about. I've never lived with a Pharisee, but I've lived with somebody who I think was pretty close to one. My grandmother, God bless her, did her best to work her way to heaven. Living with her was a miserable thing. She was always busily doing good, quite often for people who didn't want her working for them, did not want her attention. And it was my experience, both with her and with some others, that people who are working for perfection and feel they are approaching spiritual excellence are both intimidating and annoying. Also, many of them have great fear. I have never watched somebody die like I did my grandmother who was more afraid that she was not good enough to go to heaven. They take very seriously Ezekiel's warning that if you don't warn others and they are lost, their blood will be upon your head. And so she spent a great deal of time warning everyone else about what was going on in their lives. She warned me a great deal about what was going on in my life. She lovingly identified my faults and my foibles for me. Her good behavior emphasized my guilty behavior. If you're attempting to match their perfection, like some people try to do, your efforts are met with both literal and figurative ridicule from them because you never quite match up to what they expect. Eventually, you just give up. You know you can never live up to their expectations and, apparently, to God's expectations for you. 
At the same time, the example of the older brother reminds you of what you are doing wrong even if he doesn't say anything. Your parents often join in with an older brother like this to load their obvious disappointment in you on your head. This leads to a high level of what I call false guilt. It's guilt that somebody else puts on you, not guilt that you have because of what you feel you have done wrong. I think it's important to point out here that in this story, the father is not exactly God. He clearly exhibits some characteristics of God, and and he is seen as a representative of God in many ways. But this story, as tender and touching as it is, does not represent the full compassion, character, and love of God. This allows some room for us to maybe find some imperfections in the way the family dynamics worked. But we must also remember that God himself has lost many of his family members, even while treating each of them exactly as they need to be treated. The prodigal son, though, saw in his father someone who was exacting, someone who was demanding, someone who did not believe that he understood the issues with which he was dealing, and this constant irritation of his spiritual insights was galling to the younger son. He wanted freedom. He wanted to get away from the restrictions that his father had placed on the family. I want to talk a little bit more about guilt right here. I believe that we see three kinds of guilt in this story. The first one I've talked about already, false guilt. That's guilt that others load on you and for which you really shouldn't feel guilty because someone else is trying to force on you their standards of morality, which may or may not be appropriate for you. Parents and siblings are great at projecting false guilt onto others. Real guilt is based on your actions and attitudes for which you ought to feel guilty. You know you have done wrong, even, on, even up to your own, perhaps feeble, standards of morality. You know you have broken those standards. Then there's something that I call neurotic guilt. Both Real guilt and false guilt can lead into neurotic guilt. Neurotic guilt is guilt with a false face. It's something you have lost control over and all of your attempts to repress it have failed. It's the type of guilt that grinds away at your inner soul that can lead to somatic illnesses like anxiety or chronic pain or even ulcers. It also can lead to behavioral and social pathology, such as passive aggressiveness or even antisocial behavior. It leads to alienation between you and your loved ones. And the coping mechanisms that come in its place to to try to deal with this neurotic guilt are things like pride, superiority, and even self-righteousness. It's the kind of guilt for which you may sew fig leaves together to try to cover your nakedness. The impossibility of living up to the expectations of others, especially your parents, and the false and real guilt that this produces can lead to a feeling of helplessness. 
This can both drive you away from home, the alienation can lead to behaviors for which you have real guilt now, and thus we find the younger brother finally leaving home to go to a city far away, wasting his inheritance on riotous living. What does an Adventist think of when they hear the term riotous living? Drinking too much caffeine? Eating hamburgers, bacon, or shrimp? Watching football on Sabbath? Cigarettes? Beer? Drugs? No. I know exactly where most of your minds went when you heard riotous living. And where does one go to live riotous living? New York City? New Orleans? Las Vegas? San Francisco? Matitsi, Wyoming? I was the state epidemiologist and the director of preventive medical services for the state of Wyoming in the late 1980s, just when AIDS was reaching its peak in this country. Although Wyoming had very few cases of AIDS, we felt that we had more than we should have for a frontier state with wide open spaces and very few people. As we studied where the cases were, we found that most of the cases were along a strip where I-80 runs from east to west through Wyoming. Additionally, we realized that Interstate 80 starts in New York City and ends in San Francisco, the two cities in America that at that time had the highest number of cases of AIDS. In an effort to try to help control AIDS in Wyoming, we issued a health alert along the lines of suggesting that to have sexual activity in the towns and truck stops along I-80 might not be such a good idea. Well, this caused what in Wyoming might be called a media frenzy. I began getting calls from numerous sources asking me what I thought we were doing. During one interview, the interrogator pressed me rather aggressively, and I responded finally by saying, well, if you're going to have an affair, it would be better for you to have it in Matitsi than along I-80. Now, Matitsi is a small town of about 400 that's up in the north-central part of Wyoming between Thermopolis and Cody, Wyoming, very close to one of the two towns in Wyoming named Sunshine. I felt quite safe in my recommendation. Unfortunately, this comment caused what in Wyoming would be called a media firestorm. Headlines blared such things as, Dr. Johnson recommends you have your next affair in Matitsi. I seriously thought I was going to get fired. Fortunately, one of the leading commentators in Wyoming came to my rescue and wrote an article defending both the health department for their approach to AIDS and me for my sense of humor. 
She thought the town fathers of Matizzi ought to give me the keys to the city for the positive attention I had brought to their fine community. I believe she saved my job. But the point here is that you, one can live a riotous life in the most pastoral and bucolic of places. As we see in the older brother, you can even live a riotous life just inside your own mind. This brings us to the salacious part of the story in the prodigal son. Just like us, the older brother's mind immediately went to the sexual implications of his brother living a riotous life. Interestingly, prostitutes, harlots, and whores aren't mentioned in the story until the older brother angrily confronts his father outside the dance hall as his welcome home party for the son is in progress. Clearly, the younger brother had accumulated plenty of real guilt during his time away, but the older brother's reaction to his return gives us a picture of what was going on inside his head. While the younger man had been squandering his money on riotous living, the older brother had been vicariously living a riotous life through the younger brother. And it was, in many ways, his envy of his younger brother's life that made him angry in his thoughts, his feelings, and his desires. This is a hallmark of Phariseeism. Though desperately wanting to live a physically riotous life, through sheer willpower and determination and plenty of cold showers, the actual behaviors that are craved are overpowered and repressed, giving one the self-righteous feeling that they have succeeded. Ellen White has an interesting comment about such behavior in the book Christ's Object Lessons on page 97. She says, The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so, will never enter into the joy of obedience. He does not obey. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. This will lead us to do right because it is right, because right doing is pleasing to God. But let's get back to the father. He's clearly identified as a godlike character and with godlike attributes, and he suffers with his son, with his sons, as God has suffered with us. Frederick Buchner describes God's response to the prodigal children this way God's story, or the story of God and man, is simple. God made the world and loved the world. The world got lost. And God has spent the rest of human history trying somehow to bring the world back to himself. Ellen White paints the father's and the creator's pain like this in the book Education on page 263. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our creator. 
All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but the suffering did not begin or end with his manifestation in humanity. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception sin has brought to the heart of God. As soon as man left home, God began to suffer. But the prodigal son seems to respond more to his empty stomach than he does to the yearning love of his father. It's clear, however, from his plans that he does not yet know the character of the father. As he begins to think about how he is going to go home, he begins to put together a plan of how he can appease the father's wrath or anger that he has left. That he will go to his father, he will confess his sin, he will revoke his sonship and ask to live as a servant on the farm. The message the Bible describes the father's response to this attempted confession this way. But the father wasn't listening. He did not want to hear it. The fact that his son had returned was enough. The son tries to get his his confession out, but the father cuts him off and says, bring my coat, bring my best coat, and let's cover him so he's not embarrassed by these rags and signs of destitution and perhaps illness that he is manifesting. He was too busy covering the son to be worried about the guilt and the confession. He wouldn't even let him get to the sentence that said, I will renounce my sonship and become a servant. Carl Burke, in his loose paraphrase of the Bible in the book called God is for Real Man, shows great insight into his description of the father's reply to the older son when he is accosted over the extravagance of the party that he is throwing for the younger son. I'm throwing this party because I feel so good, the father says. It's not that I'm honoring the son particularly. I'm grateful that he is home, and I am so joyful that he has returned that I'm throwing a party for him. We're told that when a sinner returns to to God, God breaks out in singing in the heavenly courts. I would love to hear that singing. The father wants to deal with both sons, however, and he wants to take care of their guilt. And he does so in the only way you can deal with guilt, both neurotic, false, or true guilt. The only way guilt can be cured is by forgiveness. Such grace, such forgiveness, brings us back together, brings that which is separated, that which is alienated, back together. It is a picture of the atonement, which really, truly does come from the phrase, at one meant, bringing what is separated back together, back to one. Graceful forgiveness restores what was alienated and brings both public approval and eventually self-acceptance. But even this parable, as tender and touching as it is, 
come short of expressing the infinite compassion of the Heavenly Father. The Lord declares by his prophet, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn thee. Jeremiah 31.3. While the sinner is yet far from the Father's house, wasting his substance in a strange country, the Father's heart is yearning over him, and every longing awakened in the soul to return to God is but the tender pleading of his spirit, wooing, entreating, and drawing the wanderer back to his Father's heart of love. That's from Steps to Christ, page 54. Jack Provancho, one of my teachers in Loma Linda, wrote a book called You Can Go Home Again, which is all about the atonement and the story of the prodigal son. He embellishes the prodigal story a bit to more closely align with God's real compassion and sacrifice. In his telling of the story, the father himself eventually goes to the far-off country to seek and to reconcile his son. He finds his son in a stupor caused both by illness and by substance abuse. Here's how he describes the son's response to the encounter with his father. Suddenly his eyes opened, and then he focused wide in terror. In his near delirium, the figure bending over him in the semi-darkness took on a sinister shape. Crying out in alarm, he raised his hand tightly about his knife. He struck wildly at the threatening figure. Again and again, he drove the knife deeply into the flopping, quivering body as it collapsed with an anguished moan and lay still on the floor. The light from the dim oil lamp shone full on the aged face of his father, where he lay crumpled on his back in a slowly enlarging pool of blood. End quote. In terror, the son realizes what he has done, and he gets up and flees to the country where he gets a job with a local landowner feeding the pigs. Racked with both real and neurotic guilt, he wishes he were dead, only to be eventually discovered by one of his father's hired hands who has been sent to find him and convey to him the news that his father has not died, still loves him, and yearns for his return. Each of us plays a role in this story. Most of us, I believe, are the elder brothers. I think we as Adventists have brought elder brotherhood to a pinnacle of excellence. We are full oftentimes of judgment and self-righteousness, seeking perfection by our own works. Some of us find ourselves in the role of the father, having children over which we yearn as they perhaps are living what we consider a riotous life in a far-off country. All of us, at one time or another, have played the role of the rebellious prodigal son. This story raises several important questions that I want to leave with you. 
When did the father forgive his son? His sons? Where was the alleged necessary mediator in the reconciliation between father and son? When did the son provide the supposedly necessary confession with the list of sins that he needed to have forgiven? And are there riotous behaviors, perhaps, that God can't or won't forgive? The solution in the story for which we do not know the final outcome is the compassionate, gracious, forgiving love of the Father. Since all of these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in the lives of holiness and godliness? How then shall we 